5. Romans chapter 5. I do hope you'll be back with us for the evening service tonight, and not because I am preaching, but because the I believe the message is exceedingly important concerning child-rearing, how to make a difference in your child's life. And not only in your child, but uh, maybe children that you'll be coming in touch with or families. And I believe the Bible has the answer, and I believe it's important for us to address those. So please come back, be with us, bring your Bible, 6 o'clock for the evening service tonight. Greg, it's uh, good to have you in the service today again. Thank you for coming to be with us. I appreciate that. And uh, and, uh, Ms. Leslie, is that you back there? Ms. Leslie, come in. I thought I saw Mrs. Leslie come in. Excuse me. She's here. Good. Excellent. I know I saw her. Good to have her here. Ms. Leslie, it's good to have you this morning. Thank you. See, I go blind, and if I can get my glasses off, I can see. But that's. Uh, but in order to see, I have to have my glasses here. So anyway, oh, Romans 5, if you would. Let me get to what I'm here for. Romans chapter 5, and look, if you would, at verse number 12. We'll read the context, and as I often tell you, context is so important to understanding Scripture. We've covered the first 11 verses in Romans 5 as we preach through this, and I encourage you and exhort you, uh, if you know the Lord, get to know the first 11 verses. Those have great phrases and statements of security for you. But when we come to verse number 12, we read it to the end of the chapter for context, and here's what Paul wrote to the church at Rome. Paul writes, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression, who is the figure of him that was to come. But not as the offense, so also is the free gift. For if through the offense of one many be dead, much more the grace of God, the gift of grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ, hath abounded unto many. And not as it was by one man or one that sinned, so is the gift. For the judgment was by one to condemnation. But the free gift is of many offenses under justification. For if by one man's offense death reigned by one man, much more. They which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as by the offense of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation. Even so, by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men under justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. But where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. That as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. Let me just tell you right up front, this is a challenging passage. Uh, as I said to some of the folks in the service on Wednesday night, many of the commentaries and books that are on my shelf, and probably there are 15 to 25 books that have to do with Romans in my office, uh, I'd say two-thirds of them probably would say this is the most difficult passage in the whole of the Bible, from verses 12 through 21. But in each of their cases, they also agree with this. It's some of the most fundamental and basic truth that the Bible has to offer. But because it is challenging, some folks will simply ignore it and say, well, you know, we'll leave that for another time and another place. Well, in preaching expositionally through the Bible, when you come to a text, you can't jump it. You have to deal with it. And so we'll deal with it. Next few weeks, we'll tackle these verses. And today, we cover only one. So don't get scared and frightened uh, of all the stuff that's here. There's just one verse that we focus our attention on, and that'll be verse 12 today. But before we go too far, let me make a statement to you, if I may, and a very clear one, and I think a very distinct one. First off, let me say, if you believe in evolution, if you believe in evolution, I'm going to give you just a moment to tear Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21 out of your Bible. So if you want to go ahead and do that, if you're an evolutionist, just take your Bible and tear from the page, just slip out verse number 12 through 21, tear that section out of your Bible. I'll give you just a minute to do that for all evolutionists. Okay. 
I think everybody's done that. Yes, okay. The point made is very simple. Uh, and, and I hope it is to you. Every atheist who understands Christianity understands the importance of Romans chapter 5 and verses 12 through 21. Let me show you how important. I, I cut this out of a magazine. It's called the American Atheist Magazine. Okay? An atheist wrote it. It comes from an atheist magazine. Here's what it says. Quote, Christianity is, and he has marks, he says, must be, not just is, it must be totally committed to the special creation as described in its book Genesis, and Christianity must fight with all of its full might against the theory of evolution. And here's why. Now remember, this is an, an atheist who's writing this in an atheist magazine. Here is why. In their book of Romans, we read that sin entered the world through one man. And through sin, death and thus death has spread through the whole human race because everyone has done sin. The whole justification of Jesus' life and death is predicated on the existence of Adam and the forbidden fruit he and his wife Eve ate. Without the original sin... Who needs to be redeemed? Without Adam's fall into a life of constant sin terminated by death, what in the world is the purpose to Christianity? And the atheist says, absolutely none. An atheist understands Romans chapter 5. You get rid of Adam, you got rid of the, the whole premise on which the, the salvation message is based. And this point made in this context of this passage, it says simply that every atheist would understand the importance of this passage to us in defense of evolution. Because in the very beginning, and it's important to note this, in verse 12, to begin with, the text begins with Adam. You see, wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world. The interesting thing about it in verse 12, as we begin the context from 12 to 21 in Romans 5, the first person we read about is Adam. The good news is the last person you'll read about is verse number 21. It says, unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. So as we start with the bad news that's in Adam, that the good news is that we finish with the Lord Jesus Christ. With that understood, as I did it in my office, I will do it for you. I like to take an overview of the verses we're going to cover so we can get a sense of where we're headed. Let me talk, call your attention, first of all, that in verses 12 through 21, you'll notice that there are six comparisons or contrasts. You really need to see these because this passage is a passage of contrast. Let me point out what I mean by that. For instance, look at verse number 14 and 15. In 14, you have the contrast of Adam and Christ. Verse 14, Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression, who is the figure of him that was to come. Verse 15, But not as the offense also is the free gift, for if through the offense of one many be dead, much more the grace of God, the gift of grace, which is by one man Jesus Christ, hath abound unto many. So you have Adam and Christ laid side by side and made comparison of. Then look at verse number 19, and you have a contrast between disobedience and obedience. It says, For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Verse 21, it's the same thing stated in essence about sin and righteousness. When you skip up to verse 20, it's about law and grace. And when you go to verse 16, it's about condemnation and justification. And when you go to verse 21 that closes the text, it's about death and life. So you have six contrasts in this short passage of Scripture laid side by side so you can see the contrast between these two options. And obviously, Adam offers one side, and Christ offers the other side. So the contrast is, which do you want? Some of which you're already born under. The label of sin and sinner is already given to Adam's side. Now the question is, do you want to get out from under that and get to this other side? If you do, then you have to change teams. You have to come from the first Adam to the second Adam. That's not all. Notice, if you would, there are four references in this short text to the word or ideal of reigning you know, like a king reigning over something. Look at verse number 14. In verse 14, it talks about death reigning. In verse number 21, it talks about sin hath reigned. And verse 21 also talks about grace reigned. And then verse number 17, it says, They, talking about believers in the context, they shall reign. So there's some reigning to be done. Here's a 
process of ruling, if it were. But that's not all. You'll also found three references in this text of Scripture of the greater work or the better work of Jesus Christ. And it's illustrated with three phrases, much more. In verse 15, he has much more the grace. In verse number 17, much more they. In verse number 20, grace did much more abound. The ideal is it's a contrast of what was and what Christ did that's better and bigger and greater. But there's one more thing you'll notice, and this is an important one to note, and I'd encourage you to maybe underline the word. It's the word one, O-N-E. It is found no less than 12 times in these verses. And that's an important point because one is a word of identification. A man and woman get married, they become one flesh. They're identified as one. In context, this passage of Scripture is showing you how you are identified, first of all, as one with Adam. And two, it's showing you that in order to break that kind of relationship, you're going to have to have a new relationship established. And that is one with Christ. And so the options here is you're born into this world into an immediate union with Adam, but we've got to get out of that. And we've got to get over here to a relationship with Jesus Christ and be one with Him. And so in this passage, you'll find that word one found 12 times reading through this text of Scripture. So with that in mind, let's dig into the text. Verse 12, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. The word wherefore, obviously, is based on what's been said before. Everything else said before, first 11 verses, wherefore, based on that. Now let me say this. I would say to you what we have been dealing with has been the fruit, the fruit of salvation in verses 1 through 11. That's the security of the believer. The things that God gave you, peace with God, access by His grace into this faith, which is justification, but also access into the Father's presence. That's a gift of God. That's something that salvation brings. You come to know Christ, you have access to the Father. Until you know Christ and thereby know the Father, you can't pray the Lord's Prayer. You, have, you cannot say, Our Father which art in heaven. You have to first come to the Lord Jesus Christ and believe what the Father's Son did in your behalf. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. When you believe on Christ, you have an access to the Father, and then you can say, My Father, which art in heaven. But until you do, you can't. So the point made is, the first 11 verses give us a preview of the fruit of salvation. When you come to verse 12 through 21, you have the root of salvation. That which is out of sight, but has to be dealt with in order to enjoy the first 11 verses. And in this case, it's how did God deal with sin? You see, there is this thing that uh, God is holy and, and you can't rush into God's presence. Brian mentioned this morning about the tabernacle and an, an excellent illustration of this thing. You know what was unique about that tabernacle was it had the, the outer court and then it had the inside uh, holy uh, room or office as it were. And then, then you had the holy of holies. You know what, what kept people out of there? They were separated Gentiles couldn't even go into the court. They were separated from it because there was a barrier there. But then you had to cut it down to a smaller group and it was only Jewish people could get inside the next court. And then get inside that room, you had to be a priest to go inside that first outer, outer area office of service. And it was separated from the vast majority of people. And then to get into that last holy of holies, you really had to be separated. You had to be the high priest. And even then, you only got to go once a year. And you better be right when you got there because you wouldn't be coming out on two feet. What does all that say? It was just separated. There was a separation in that thing. And that's one of the things we've lost in our present society. The world has a hard time finding out who the folks are who can get into the holy of holies. If God's people live like the world, then they don't know who can go to the Holy of Holies. They don't necessarily know that now in Christ, the middle wall of petition has been removed. And every believer has access to the Father through Jesus Christ the Son. So every believer has it. But the world looks at it and says, are you a Christian? Maybe they ask that question in that sarcastic, quizzitive way by saying, you don't act like one. I mean, you, you, you have bad language. 
you, you talk about things that Christians surely wouldn't talk about. You go places that Christians surely wouldn't go. You engage yourself in things surely Christians wouldn't engage themselves in. You laugh at sin on comedies of television. You absolutely absorb yourself and get intoxicated with sitcoms that make people laugh about people's sin. How can you do that? And we might say, well... Maybe you've got a point. Maybe, maybe I need to look at my lifestyle. Maybe I need to look at the what I do and how I do it. Maybe I've been around Christians so long that I think you can just do what you will and act like you like and it didn't make any difference. And it wouldn't surprise me that out of the mouth of some pagan, he looked you square in the eye and said, you, don't you remember the story about the tabernacle? I heard it when I was in Sunday school that there was a distinction. There was a separation between the people who got to go into God's presence. It was the high priest, and he only got to go once a year. And he had to be absolutely pure when he got there. And he looks at us and says, I thought that's what Christians were, people who could enter in God's presence at any time. And the ideal that they would be different and separate and, and unique. Oh, yes, salvation by grace gets you the right into His presence. But to enjoy that presence without that sense of, of being ashamed of our sin means the absolute lying aside and laying aside of every weight and sin that so easily besets us. And that's how you enjoy the presence of God. And I say to you that this passage of Scripture tells us and sets forth right up front that there is the fruit of salvation, which is the security of the believer. But in the passages before us, we deal with the root, sin. How is it dealt with? What do we do with it? What did God do to deal with sin so we'd have ready access to His presence and could enjoy it? I call your attention to several things, but let me note first in verse number 12, it is clear from just reading the verse as it is. Before I bisect it and before we dissect it and cut it apart, the first thing is so clear. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. The first thing you note is that God and Scripture places, as it were, the full and complete blame for human sin on back of the first man. That's what the verse says first. Now, it says other things, I grant you, but it says that. And it needs to be understood why it says that. Because if you ever go to share the gospel with somebody, you need to understand this principle and truth. And it's very simple. See, in, in the book of Genesis, let me take you there because that's where the story originates. In Genesis chapter 2, in Genesis chapter 2, the very first book of the Bible, in chapter 2, in verse number 16, Moses wrote this. Genesis 2, 16, And the Lord God commanded the man, that would be Adam, saying to Adam, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat. Verse 17, but. Anytime there's a but, it's a stop sign, and it means to look all four ways, or three ways, before crossing. So, but. Of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Now, that's the command that God gave to Adam in the very beginning. And it's important to understand that because somebody say, well, wait just a minute, Pastor. Don't you understand that God told Adam that for sure? We don't doubt that. But what you don't understand is that it was Eve that went right out, listened to the devil. The devil talked to her in the form of a serpent, and he tempted her to go down there and take off that tree. Did he not? Yes, that's correct. Then why is it such that the woman is not the first woman in the Bible that says it is sin and entered the world through her? Why didn't that happen? Because, verse 18, verse 18 of Genesis 2 says, And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helpmeet. When God gave the command to Adam, Eve wasn't even on the ground. Eve wasn't walking around. Eve wasn't present. It was only as God looked at Adam and said, Look, this guy needs some help. I mean, this guy's really got a messy house he's keeping and he needs some help. I'll just get him a helpmeet. So consequently, God says to Adam, here's the command about the tree thing, and by the way, I'm going to bring you a helpmate. So Adam didn't get that picture. Adam had no clue about this business of, of, of Eve coming on the scene, and she might partake of the fruit. He had nothing of that, and she had nothing of the understanding of what God had said to Adam. Unless Adam had told her, which the Scriptures do not tell us. But what is crystal clear, when Eve sinned in Genesis chapter 3, which is one chapter over from chapter 2, obviously, it was not her sin that brought guilt on the whole human race. And the reason it wasn't is because she was deceived into doing what she did. Listen to me, and listen to me good. Eve did what she did because she was deceived. Adam did what he did because he disobeyed. 
And that's why Romans chapter 5 talks about obedience and disobedience being those issues of which Christ and Adam are, are in, in detail contrasted. Adam disobeyed God. Well, you say, wait a minute, it was his wife who listened to the servant. Why didn't, why didn't he just step up and... That's exactly the point. Why didn't Adam step up and say, Look, listen, Eve, you didn't hear the command like I did. I heard God thunder out of heaven and God said, don't eat of that tree. Now, I heard that. And being responsible for you, I'm telling you, don't eat that tree. And what happened was Satan obviously got Eve aside away from Adam's authority, leadership, and the umbrella of his protection. And led her by deception into doing what she did. So the Bible does not hold Eve accountable, responsible for what she did. The Bible holds Adam responsible as our federal head for one reason. Because he directly disobeyed God. Even after she plucked to the tree and said, look, I've taken a bite of this thing and this is good. I'm telling you, man, this is good. He should have said, he should have said, no, 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 I can't eat of that. God specifically commanded me not to eat the fruit of that tree. I don't care what the influences were. I don't care how enticing that was. I don't care how much motive of pressure she placed upon him for the evening meal and this is it. I say to you, he had been given a direct command from God and it was, do not eat of that tree. And he ate. He disobeyed. That's interesting, isn't it? Because all through the scriptures, two passages that come to mind when I was studying showed up on my radar screen very quickly. And there are these two verses. Listen, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2, where in time past we walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. That means all the people born after Adam are looked upon as children of disobedience. We're not looked upon as children who just got on the wrong path. We're looked upon as children of disobedience. He repeats the same thing in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 6. Let no man deceive you with vain words, for because of these things cometh the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. It's not a thing that we're just some, you know, folks who've been taken in. We're called children of disobedience. When we're born into this world, we come in that way. I, I don't read the Apocrypha for, for good reasons, but occasionally I'll get some reference that I'll read in a book, and it'll say something about, as in the case this week, Second Ezra, I think it was page 700 or, page, or chapter 7, verse 118. I went to that thing, and I pulled that out. I have a copy in one of my Bibles down there of the Apocrypha. Here's what it said. Now look, we don't, we don't trust the Apocrypha. It's not part of the trusted canon. But whoever wrote this thing knew this much. Listen. Oh Adam, what have you done? For though it was you who sinned, that fall was not yours alone, but ours also who are your descendants. Even the Apocrypha said it. Whoever wrote that? And I don't know who. And we don't use it as a part of our Bible. But the fact is, whoever wrote the Apocrypha said, Hey, Adam, don't you understand what you just did? You disobeyed God, and this thing has trickled down to everybody because of what you did. Romans 5, verse 12. For as by one man, Adam, sin entered into the world. Listen to me. What that verse says also and should say to everybody in this room in a very practical and personal thing in a way is that sin did and sin does have a far-reaching effect much farther than you ever dream when you sin. No matter what sin you commit, sin will have a far-reaching effect further than you ever dreamed it could. You think Adam was thinking about that when he took that bite and said, Oh boy, I've sinned now. I wonder what this will do. I doubt that he even comprehended it, but I do know this. It had a far-reaching effect because every person, human being, born after Adam was born a sinner. And it was directly related to this man, Adam. By the way, Paul is not saying here that sin originated with Adam. He is simply saying in this context that sin entered this world through Adam. And there is a distinction. Sin originated with Satan. We know that. First John chapter 3, verse 8 said, He that committeth sin is of the devil, for the devil sinneth from the beginning. His was the beginning of the sin. That ideal, it originated with him. But that's not what Paul is saying. Paul is saying sin got into this world through a man. And that man was Adam. And that man brought sin into this world when he disobeyed. By the way, Romans chapter 5, again, look at verse number 12. Wherefore, as by one man, what's the word next? Sin. 
And would you please note that it is sin singular. It is not sin sins. It is not the sins of Adam. It is a sin. It's the singular on this point, and that's important for, I think, many reasons, but the one that's most obvious is this, what he's talking about here. This sin is not a singular, what we call unrighteous, wicked act or deed. Rather, what he's talking about here is the inherent propensity to unrighteousness. And somehow, some way, just as Adam passed on to his sons and his offspring, his physical nature, his physical features, he also, in some way, passed off to all offspring after him, uh, context and issue of being dominated by sin. And that's what we all got. When you came into this world, you collected something that Adam started back in the Garden of Eden. Man did not and does not evolve into higher, better state, but has devolved, degenerated into a greater and greater depth of sin and sinfulness. And it all started with Adam back in the beginning. Now listen, we identify with Adam. What he did affects every single one of us. Sometimes people say, well, that, that just doesn't seem fair. What one man does affects all of us. It may not seem fair to you, but you better thank God it did. And before I'm done... I hope you can see why from Romans chapter 5. But first off, let me tell you that this is a principle pointed out through the whole of the Bible. Let me give you one. Genesis chapter 18, you remember the story. Abraham was heading over to a place called Sodom and Gomorrah. Found, actually, there are five cities of the plains. We only talk about two of them. We talk about Sodom and Gomorrah. There were five cities of the plains. And the fact of the matter is that at Lot had headed over that way and he'd set up camp and he lived in Sodom and he was doing his thing. Consequently, Abraham, because of the concern he had for his nephew Lot, is concerned about Sodom and Gomorrah. And so he says, in essence, God tells Abraham, says, I don't think it'd be right that I go over and destroy this wicked city without uh, telling Abraham. Abraham is one of mine, and, and I owe it to Abraham to tell him. So God tells Abraham, I'm going to go over and destroy the place. And Abraham's thinking, my goodness, I got my nephew over there and he is, his wife, his children, whoever else he's related to. Oh, my, this is horrible. And, and so Abraham in Genesis chapter 18 goes to bat for a city. You remember the story? He started praying. He said, God, would you please spare that city? If I can go over there, if you can find, if you can look upon the hearts of men and women in that city and find 50 righteous people, will you spare that place? God said, I'll spare the place for 50. I think Abraham recalculated and said, you know, I don't know what kind of testimony my nephew bears, and I don't know what kind of church he attends, so maybe we better make it 45. God, don't be upset with me. Would you, would you please just consider if we had 45 righteous, would you spare that city? And God said, for 45's sake, I'll spare that city. And Abraham thinks again. He said, well, maybe he got into a liberal church. Maybe they don't preach the gospel. Maybe they don't teach anything about the Word of God. i tell you what. God, what if it just has 40 righteous people? God comes back and said, look, 40 righteous. I'll, I'll spare it for 40's sake. And Abraham saying, well, God's offered generous. Just maybe I better go lower. And he said, Lord, what if I just could find 30 people in this place? God says, for 30. Abraham said, Peraventure, I ask you for one more time. What about 20? 20. Abraham said, this is so easy. I'll ask for 10. What about just 10? God said, I'll save it for 10. Now, I want you to let that sink in for just a moment. Do you realize that for 10 righteous people in that city... God would have spared the city of Sodom. Just 10 people. Just 10. Not 10,000. Not 10 million. Just 10 righteous people. I will spare this place. But he couldn't find 10 righteous people. Couldn't find 10 righteous people. Do you think you're not important to your neighborhood? You think you have absolutely no import to the community, the city in which you live? I got news for you. If you'd have been in the city of Sodom living there, and if you could have influenced your family and just enough more to make ten, you could save that city. It's all it would have taken. It's all it would have taken. God would have looked the other way and said, Okay, I spare it for ten's sake. But because he couldn't find ten righteous people, God, as you well know, rained fire and brimstone down on that place and he destroyed that city. My point is this. You see, the whole city was judged. There was a wickedness about those people. There is no doubt about that. And the homosexuality was running rampant in that place. And God saw it, and it was a, it was a stench in his nostrils, and, and his wrath burned hot. 
And so God poured down on the city of Sodom and Gomorrah brimstone and fire, and the place was destroyed, and Lot and his family tried to exit. They didn't want to. Some of the family members thought Lot was mocking, or they were mocking him, and it was a, almost a joke that he was asking them to leave. And my fears are that he had been so much a part of the world then when he came down to spiritual things, they thought he was joking. It was not serious. You see, what you want to do is live the Christian life in such a way that people around you take your Christianity seriously no matter what comes out of your mouth. If you say, look, I, I'm telling you, things are getting serious. Times are getting hard. I'm telling you, you need to turn it from the direction you're headed into the right direction. Your life ought to back it up that when it comes from this guy, I'm going to listen. There are some Christians I just don't pay any attention to. It's like a, a, a bee flying and the hum that a bee makes in the air. You know, it's just... Mm, that's the kind of life they live. You don't know how to take them serious or not. But boy, when that thing comes down at you and you know he's heading for your head to sting you, then you get really serious. So, oh, well, this guy means business. He's got a different sound to this thing. Christians who have that different sound, distinct sound, their lives back up their word. That's the guy you better listen to. And evidently, in Lot's case, that didn't happen. But sadly, sadly, this is not the only occasion. There's another one. It happened over in Joshua chapter number 7. In Joshua chapter 7, the passage is that there was Joshua, and he was, a, he was a, um, leading a group of people, as you recall, after Moses had died. And they came to this situation where they had Jericho. And there was a man in there who got embellished with some beautiful Babylonian garments. And consequently, there had been a directive and a decree already stated. Now, look, when we go up there, don't anybody take any of the accursed things. They're accursed. Don't take any of them. As you know the story, there was a man by the name of Achan. Achan goes up there, and Achan takes some of those accursed things. You know what happened? Do you think God just took Achan out and killed Achan alone? No, he did not. Joshua chapter 7, verse 1, here's one man who sinned, but God took the family, entire family's life. Some estimate it could have been 40 or 50 folks involved in that group of people who died, and yet it was just one of the family members who died. This principle carries over throughout the Scripture that, that God, as it were, does judge in these circumstances and did so in the Old Testament. Well, I remind you, Adam was up in the Old Testament, and everything that happened with Adam has a sense of that, and let me bring it down to you and me. How does what Adam do there in the Garden of Eden have much to do with me here, and how would God judge, justify it? Let me point you to a verse of Scripture that I believe holds much of the key. We read over it and taught it when we were in Hebrews chapter 7 a long time back. Back about when they had dinosaurs on the earth, we were in Hebrews as we preached through that book. In Hebrews chapter 7, here's what the Bible says. Listen to it carefully. Hebrews 11, or 7 and verse 7. And without all contradiction, the less is blessed of the greater or better. And here men that die receive tithes, but there he receiveth them of whom it is witness that he liveth. And as I may so say, Levi also who receiveth tithes paid tithes in Abraham. For he was yet in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. Now, it seemed maybe to you like a complicated verse, but let me just break it down in its simplest form. The point that's being made here is, is that although Melchizedek, which, which was a priest in the king of Jerusalem, so to speak, he lived many, many, many years before Levi. And if you know Levi, he was the, the head of the priestly tribe. And even before he was born, all of these things he's talking about... These people who were born after they were descendants of Abraham. And the point this passage is making is Levi, by being in the seed of Abraham's loins, shared in the tithe that Abraham paid to Melchizedek. He means even before he was born inside the body of him, Abraham, were these future descendants who were going to have impact in a spiritual way on God's people. And while his body seed was inside Abraham, which were not given birth yet and were not going to for years to come, Abraham represented all those people who would pay tithe to Melchizedek. And that's Hebrews 7, 7 and passage following. It's saying he was in Abraham. That's how he paid tithe to him, even though he wasn't even born. You say he wasn't even alive. How did he pay tithe? Because he was in the seed of Abraham, and he was to be born. In the same exact way, we were in Adam, though we were not physically present. 
we are descendants of Adam, and from that seed of Adam, we, as it were, were present in the Garden of Eden in the disobedience of Adam to the direct command of God. And I say to you, it's exactly the same thing. By the way, why is it that Paul keeps hammering away at this idea? Well, it's for a very obvious reason. Because if a real historical Adam did not represent all mankind in their sinfulness and the condemnation God placed on it, then a real historical Christ couldn't represent us in salvation. It's very simply, that's how it's set up and that's the way it is. I mentioned to you this. You may say, it's just not fair that I was born into sin and I had no choice and that it's not fair that, that I pay for something Adam did. Let me assure you of something. Only as you identify with Adam in sin and condemnation are you then able under the God the Father's watchful eye to place you and identify you with Christ in his salvation. Now I grant you, scriptures do not ex it is what we would call illustrate and explain in great detail this truth. It is one of those verses of Scripture and passages of Scripture and absolute basic truth that I believe, though we do not understand all the Bible, it's these kind of passages that we embrace by faith of what we do understand. And I'm saying to you that it is important for you to understand that you were in Adam in that garden, and therefore, you, when you were in fact born into this world physically, you were born a sinner, and that's what the text is saying. But that's not all it says. Looking back at verse 12, chapter 5. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sin. It's important to understand this. When sin walked through the door into this world, something came with it. And that something that came with sin was death. And death walked through the same door, came right along with sin. So death, now listen to me, death is the consequences of sin. Get that deep down into the fiber of who you are. Death is the consequences of sin. Adam was not originally created to be subject to death. That's obvious. He became subject to death only when he refused to be subject to God's word. When God said, don't eat of that tree, and he ate of that tree, the Bible says when he disobeyed God, then death came on the scene. Why? Because he did not subject himself to God, and by so doing, he subjected himself to death, the consequences of sin. And that's what the verse is saying. Listen, every person that dies, listen carefully. Every person that dies, including every baby that has ever died, Every person, every baby, everybody who has ever died did not necessarily die because they committed sins. But rather for having a sin nature, they died. Now, I grant you, 1 Corinthians eleven thirty say there are some people who are sickly and some asleep, Paul wrote, in concerning the Lord's Supper. And those people who did that, there are some people who are indeed what we call a secondary cause. They forced God into taking their lives because of the way they live. Nobody doubts that. But when we talk about the basic fundamental truth of the Bible, it is this. The wages of sin is death, and that's for everybody. Everybody in this room is going to die barring the Lord's return. And your death is not going to be necessarily because you go out and commit some great evil. You're going to die because sin entered in this world and all of us are sinners. That's why you're going to die. And sin has passed upon all mankind. And there's a reason also subsidizes or we call modifies or supports. And that is because everybody's going to sin too. But the consequences of sin is death. And that's the point of the passage. Listen to this. As I was studying this, and it, it, it just comes to mind that we need to make this clear. If Hitler is in hell, if Hitler is in hell, Hitler, who killed six million Jews, is not in hell because he killed six million Jews. That is not why. You know, I don't care whether Larry King, when Larry King says Hitler's in hell because he, he killed six million Jews. That is absolutely not the truth. If Hitler is in hell, Hitler is in hell because Hitler had a sin nature and never believed on the Lord Jesus Christ as his Savior and he died and went to hell. That's why he's in hell. Nobody goes to hell for what they do as sins. You could be as drunk as a skunk sitting in this service this morning, but that's not what's going to send you to hell if you're going. You're going to hell because you were born with a sinful nature, which, as it were, were introduced to this world through Adam, and you have not jumped ship. And you do that by simple faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
You want out of, out of Adam's camp, then you have to step across the line and you have to be born again. You were born in the first camp, you were born into Adam's likeness. And you were born with Adam's sin nature. You want out of that? Then the only way is John 3. You must be born again. And then you're born into God's family. But the consequence of here is not talking about Mortis' life as we're talking about sin and death. What's important to understand this, I, as much as I despise Saddam Hussein, if Saddam Hussein dies and goes to hell, he will go to hell not because of what he did to the Iraqi people. That's not why he'll be in hell. He'll be in hell because he was born a sinner and he did not receive, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ as his Savior and was born spiritually from above. That's why he'll be in hell. And everything else he did, now if you believe in degrees of punishment in hell, which I lend that to, I believe the guy will suffer more. And you say, how can you suffer more in the same place with people who are not suffering more? Believe me, if it can get hot in here and some of you be freezing to death, it's going to be a piece of cake for God to do the same thing in hell. In any given service, we got folks who are freezing to death and we got folks who are sweating. Now, if I can do that here, and I am just a man and know nothing about electricity, heating, or cooling, you imagine what God can do in hell? He can make you fry, as it were, next door to a guy who may be freezing to death. Uh, which I doubt that'll happen, but the point made is that God can do what he needs to do to demonstrate his power against whatever he wishes to show it to. And my thing is to say this to you, you do not become a sinner by committing sins, but rather you commit sins because you're a sinner. Hitler is a sinner, not because of what he did. He was born that way, and he never repented of his sin and believed on Christ as far as we know. And Saddam Hussein is in the same boat. Now listen, Death is not only a consequence of sin, but death is also an issue of separation. We know most of this, and it'll be old hat for some of you, but for those not, listen carefully. First off, and the scriptures are quite clear about this, is that the first thing, Adam's first death, was a spiritual separation. You see, death, spiritually speaking, is a separation from God. And in the book of Genesis, when you come to chapter number 3, and it's an interesting thing, Adam has now sinned. And the Bible says, And they, Adam and Eve, heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? Now listen, the first evidence... Of, of death is spiritual in Adam's case, and it does separate you from God. It's an awareness of that. When Adam sinned, he realized that he and God, something had come between them. Instead of God walking into the garden in the cool of the day and them just having a wonderful time of fellowship, all of a sudden he has sinned, and he, here comes God, and there goes Adam. Adam no longer wants to sit down and talk or walk and speak and share. Adam wants to hide. And what did he do that for? Because something in his heart, that sin, had put a barrier between him and God. And so the first evidence of this death is separation from God. And it means everybody in this room, if you have not been born again, you are at this very moment. You're not going to be. It's not down the road somewhere. It is at this very moment that you are separated from God and you will not go to heaven when you die because you and God are at odds. There is sin between you and it is your sin, your sin nature. And unless you have been born again, according to John chapter 3, you and God will stay on opposite pages, as it were, until you meet Him and He casts you into the lake of fire forever and forever. But there's a second kind of separation. That second kind of separation is a separation we call physical. It's physical death. The first is spiritual. The second is physical. The physical separates us from people, from folks we love. When you read in the Bible, Genesis chapter 3, Adam sins. When you come to Genesis chapter 5 and verse number 5, it says, And he died. He died. That's a result of his sin. It's a result of your sin. Someday you will die. Somewhere right now there is a casket that has, as it were, quote, your name on it. There is that piece of real estate somewhere that you're going to be placed in the ground by. And that's going to be because you are a sinner. You were born a sinner. Sin came into the world. And that's the consequences of sin. But it will not be because of the sins you committed. It's because of your sinful nature that you're there. We were born that way. The point is that in Adam's case, he died physically. Then there's a third one we don't talk much about. There's not only the spiritual death, and that is when, you know, you separate from God and you're born into that spiritual state, but then there's that physical, which separates you from friends. But the Bible speaks about this one. 
in Revelation chapter 21. Listen carefully to it. Chapter 21 and verse number 8. John writes it and he writes it forthrightly. He says, But the fearful and the unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake of fire which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. The second death. There is a first death, but the first death just gets you out of this world. And that is separates you from people. That second death separates you from God for all eternity. You presently in this service here, God's presence is, is here. People come into a service and, and wonder, is God present? Sure he is. God is always, everywhere, present at once. We teach it as the omnipresence of God. Everywhere present at once in his full powers and strengths. There is no place on this earth you can go where God's presence is not real and absolute. Everywhere you go. You can go stand in the middle of the cemetery where all the dead bodies of people are in the past have been. God is there. There is just absolutely nowhere on this earth you can go that God is not present. You can go into the darkest pool hall and the vilest of the vile back rooms on, on some major city in this country where the greatest wickedness is ever performed. God is there. God is omnipresent. He is everywhere present at once. As far as we understand the scripture, there's only one time that'll change. And that is when man is separated from God eternally. That's called the second death. And they're cast into the lake of fire. And in his essence, God will not be there. And the idea of that is it's the first time that man has ever been absolutely away from and abandoned to the absence of God. First time ever. Otherwise, God is at your fingertips, so to speak. God is just a breath away. God is here. God is right here, right now. And I remind you that people who are born once die twice. People who are born twice die once. And that's, of course, talking about the new birth. Some people are scared to death of death. And that's no surprise. The Scripture de declared that a long time ago. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 says, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, and that is the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. That's good news for us. That ideal is that, that God has delivered them who the fear of death were all their lifetime subject to the bondage of it. How do you get away from the fear of it? How do you deal with that? By simply placing faith in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. What Christ did on the cross, he did for us. He died for our sins so that you and I could live forever with him. And even when we leave this world and we close our eyes in death and our heart ceases to beat, to be absent from this body is to be present with the Lord. Such security. Nobody else in the world but the believer knows. That's so crucial because the latter part of verse 12 of chapter 5, look at it again. Wherefore, as by one man's sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men for that. And note the last phrase, for that all have sinned. That's an important thing, and you need to understand it. In fact, I recommend you write in your Bible after the words that uh, for all for that all have sinned. I'd recommend you put in three words right after that verse, and I believe the text would encourage it. All sinned in Adam. For all have sinned in Adam, and there's a reason for that. And the reason is very simply. The word translated sin in that verse of Scripture in the Greek text is an aorist tense. What that means and what it says, at a point in time in the past, all sinned. And we know that to be in the Garden of Eden when Adam sinned and disobeyed God. That's why it's written the way it is. So for your clarification, it simply is to say, And death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned in Adam. Does that not mean we still sin? Oh, that's no need to deal with that. This is not dealing with the moment. This is dealing with the past. Remember the root? This is the root. This is where it came from. This is how it goes. And this is how it grows. 
But if you don't understand this, then you're going to miss a major part of the whole process of salvation. That's why you don't go to somebody and you start telling them about them needing to be saved. And they look you square in the face and say, look, I go to church every Sunday. I read my Bible every day. I give to the church. I help my neighbors. I mow the grass. I plow their fields. I do everything in the world. I, I sit down at night and think about God. And I look at the stars. And I'm just so happy I'm alive. And, and, and what are you looking for? And you say, that doesn't matter. That doesn't have a thing to do with it. You may be the most righteous, holy person in your whole neighborhood. has nothing to do with it. What does it have to do with it? Simply this. You were born a sinner in Adam. And you will die a sinner in Adam unless you're born again. And that's what we tend to miss. So we have pegged this thing down so much that what people do justifies them. Oh, this guy must be a Christian. He goes to church. He has a Bible. He, he, he talks the language. He must be a Christian. That's not the point. The point is, he's born a sinner. If he has not been born again, he's going to die and go to a devil's hell and eventually be cast in the lake of fire, which is the second death. Now, my point is this. We don't go to people and say, what are you doing? And I can tell whether you're a Christian or not. We go with the assumption you are guilty because of Romans chapter 5 and verse number 12. For as by one man sin entered into the world and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men. Now, this is the catch. Do everybody die? Tell me yes or not. Does everybody die by and large? Generally, yeah. By and large, everybody dies. Why does everybody die? Because they're all guilty. See the point? So you ask the guy, if you're talking to him to witness this, are you going to die, you think? Well, yeah, I'm going to die someday. Fine. The Bible says you're guilty. That's why you need to be saved. Because all have sinned. And because all have sinned, all are going to die. Barring the Lord's return. You say, well, wasn't there a couple of guys who did? Enoch and Elijah. Sure did, but they were dead spiritually first. By the way, even the Lord Jesus Christ died for sin, didn't he? Just not his own. Vicariously, he took upon himself the sins of the whole world, but he died for sins, ours. You see, so death indeed takes life. And I say to you, my friend, that it's important for you to understand that when God identifies us with Adam, as he did in this case, that he's doing you a great favor. And he's doing it in several counts. One is... The first is this. I am convinced of reading the scriptures, knowing my own heart, and knowing people as I deal with them both in counseling and ministry. I am convinced, first of all, if God had tested and checked each and every human being individually, the results would still be the same. We'd have disobeyed God. Reason? Isaiah said it best. He said, all we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us have, as it were, turned her our own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's what Isaiah described the people he was working with. He said, all of us are going astray. Every single one of us going our own way. And even if Adam hadn't have sinned, believe me, I am confident that it would be true we would. We would have fallen short of the test. And then there's that second thing. Maybe more importantly, by condemning the whole race through Adam, God was then able to put that whole condemned race under the auspices of the death of Christ as being the Savior of the world. And that's why the Bible uses the phrase. He's the Savior of the whole living world. Because all these people were in Adam, then Christ gave His Son to die as a second Adam to cover their sins, but this time not to encourage their sin, but to cure their sins through conversion to Himself. And that's why He's called the second Adam, because He answers to the problems and the failures of the first. And you better thank God then that you were first in Adam and that classified you so that the second Adam could come along and say, I've covered that. I've covered that. I'm the second Adam and I've covered Adam's sins. But you must believe and take me at my word. This verse of Scripture says a lot of things. Let me give you quickly three things. We close. The first thing it says to me is that we're all sinners. We were born that way. And being born a sinner, it is an absolute fact that we're going to die barring the Lord's return. So death is a common consequence of all sin. Men die, men are buried, and a fact, because all are sinners. Secondly, you have to understand that you're going to die and meet God who hates sin. And he made a provision for it. And if we reject that provision, I believe that's the reason for the God's anger towards sin. I believe God is angry because he makes a way of provision. And we snub our noses at it as it were. It's like a parent who says to a child, look, I don't want you doing this, but I would allow you to do this, and here's the way you go do this. And a child says, I'm not going to do that either. I'm going to go over and do what you don't want me to do. 
And I believe that's enough to make a parent angry. And rightly so. There should be some righteous indignation toward that kind of attitude. And yet that's what man does. And when man then faces God, God is angry about that because he made a very clear provision for man in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Then there's this third thing. You're hearing this message this day by simply the good grace of God. That in itself says that God has no interest in you filling up hell or the lake of fire. That's not what he's after. What he is after, he's after men, women, boys, and girls coming to the realization of this truth that we're all sinners in Adam. And then even after our own birth, we practice sin. And what God wants of us is that sin is not good for us. It is not in our best interest. And God can help us live a Christian life in a successful way. But it starts with believing on the Lord Jesus Christ and His finished work. So this morning, if you're in this service and there's never been a time in your life where you repented of your sin and believed on Christ as Savior, this is your opportunity to do it. I believe personally that's why God the Holy Spirit has brought you here today. I have never believed, nor would I ever, believe that people come here to the New Life Baptist Church by accident. I don't believe that. I don't believe in chance and I don't believe in luck. I believe in divine design and believe in divine sovereignty of God to work His will after the counsel of His own pleasure to accomplish what He sees is the big picture. And I believe God got you here to hear what you've heard to act upon it in truth. First off, understand you're a sinner not because of what you do, but because of what you're born into. You're born a sinner after the similitude of Adam. Secondly, please understand Christ died for you on the cross. Christ died for you. Christ died for you to take away your sins. And all he asks is, Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord, who died for you, shall be saved. Simple, but yet profound. There is no reason for anybody to die in their sin and go to hell. And there is every reason to trust Christ and be gloriously saved forever. If you're here and you need to be saved, please come. Allow us to show you the Bible, show you from the Scriptures how you can be saved. If you've been saved but not baptized, please come. Allow us to set a date for baptism and get that taken care of. If you're here and you consider joining the New Life Baptist Church and haven't done so, please consider pray about this being the will of the Lord for you this day. Bow your heads with me. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the Holy Scriptures again and for the blessing they are to us in understanding you and your will and your word. We pray now that you might guide and direct us through this invitation and help us, I pray, to do that which we ought and that to which you have addressed in our hearts and in our lives. I pray that those who are here in this service who have never believed on you as Savior and Lord, I pray as we sing the invitation song, Just As I Am, that people will come just as they are. And Father, I pray even though they may feel religious, they may belong to a church somewhere along the way, they may have prayed prayers, they may have done religious things. But in their heart of hearts, they weren't aware that they needed to be saved because of their birth problem, the birth and relationship, the union they had with Adam. They thought they were getting saved because of the actions of their own behavior. And, Father, a misunderstanding of the principle by which we need to be saved is crucial in this case. And I pray, help people to realize that we're sinners, not only by birth, but by choice. We choose our sin. We act upon it on our own will. So today I ask you to speak to hearts, work in lives, and bring men, women, boys, and girls to salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen. Would you stand with me, please? 282 in your hymn book, if you'd open it up, read and sing with us the first stanza. Just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, and that thou bidst me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come. If that's your case, we invite you to come. 282 verse 1, you obey the Lord, would you? As we sing, just as I am. God has spoken to your heart, would you come? God has spoken to your heart, would you come? God has spoken to your heart. Would you come? If God has spoken to your heart, would you come? Thank you so much for your attention and your time. And one thing you'll note around here, we don't spend a lot of time on an invitation. Very simple reason. We believe the Holy Spirit knows what He wants to accomplish. And once His Word has been preached and taught, we believe it's up to people to submit to Him. I don't want to persuade you, and I don't want to in, in any ways impose upon you what I think is what you ought to do. I think you simply ought to listen to the Lord and His Spirit, and it doesn't take Him long to speak. But here's the catch. If He spoke, 
and you didn't respond. I'll be down here at the front wandering around after the service. I'd be glad to talk with you and speak with you, and I, too, would be glad to take a Bible and show you from the Scriptures how you can be saved and know it and get your life on the right track. May the Lord help you to do just that. Our Father in heaven, thank you for this opportunity this morning in the Sunday school and again here in the worship service to be in your house. We thank you so very much for the Holy Scriptures and for the direction that they give to our lives. We pray again that you bless the truths that we have heard, and I pray that we would act upon them. I pray that we would not be the same, having been in the context and the atmosphere of the New Life Baptist Church this morning. Thank you again for every member of our church and their faithfulness. Please bless them. Give them a great and wonderful, restful afternoon. And then bless our guests. Thank you so very much for their coming. And thank you for their trusting us with this hour of their time. And I pray please bless and minister to them as they have needs. And again, bless the evening service. Bless the choir practice at 5 and 5.30 men's prayer. And then the 6 o'clock service and the message on how to make a difference in your child's life. Help these to be beneficial, helpful things as they come from your word. Thank you again for this beautiful day. Help us to rejoice and be glad in it. In Christ's name we ask it. Amen. May the Lord bless you and keep you until we meet again. You're dismissed.